From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Black history in Colorado is diverse and rich, but not necessarily widely known. A new exhibit in Boulder is working to change that by illuminating and reclaiming the stories of Black people across the Rocky Mountain state. I'm hoping that it's a gateway for people to delve more deeply into Colorado's Black history and then just understand the ways that we have felt so many barriers, obstacles, but we still manage to triumph, we're resilient, and we assert our humanity. Then, student loans have come due after a pandemic pause. But what does that mean going forward? We'll explore various options, including consolidation. Why consolidate? Because right now, through the end of the year, the department will give you credit toward IDR forgiveness going back to your oldest loan. Thank you for your generous donation during the member drive. Your support, along with other donors, is essential. It's the only way CPR can report the news to you, to bring you entertainment and music. Donating, that's voluntary, so thank you for choosing to donate. Because of you, Colorado Public Radio can continue to do its best work for you, your community, and our state. You truly make a difference. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There's been lots of attention lately on an influx of Black culture in Boulder, largely attributed, of course, to the arrival of Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, head coach of the CU Buffs football team. But in many ways, it also seems like a continuation of an ongoing conversation about the Black experience in Boulder. It was the focus of a documentary released in 2022 And it also came up last fall as CU launched its new Center for African and African-American Studies, a place where students, faculty, and members of the community can connect and learn more about Black and African history and culture. We talked to the head of the center just before it opened. Here's some of what he had to say about the long process of opening the center. Now, I could sing Sam Cooke. It's been a long time coming to get here, right? It's been a lot of struggle, right? A lot of late nights, early mornings, a lot of meetings and dealing with all this stuff. But now is one of those magical moments where we can have an open house and say we have a permanent space in Boulder, Colorado, to share African-American culture. Raylan Rabaka is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and the founding director of the Center for African and African-American Studies. Well, now add to the discussion a new exhibit at the Museum of Boulder. It's centered around illuminating the backstories of Black Coloradans across the state, including those who've lived in the Boulder area for the past two centuries. The Proclaiming Colorado's Black History exhibit is expected to be on display at the museum for the next two years. I'm here at the museum today with some of the folks who helped put this exhibit together. I'm joined now by Adrian Miller, AKA the Soul Food Scholar, and Minister Glenda Strong Robinson, a civil rights activist and the historian for the NAACP of Boulder County. And later, we'll be joined by artist Adderley Grant Lord, who curated the art for this exhibit. Thank you both for being here. Good to be with you. Great to be here. We're excited. So you've been working on this for about two years, which means this project was started in the wake of the protest for racial justice that followed George Floyd's murder in 2020. Do you see this exhibit as part of the national reckoning, so to speak, 
on race and conversations about justice for black people. Yeah, so um, this is not surprising to black people, but what happened to George Floyd, his murder, was a wake-up call to a lot of people. They didn't realize how this country really plays out for a lot of people who live here. And so one thing that I've noticed is there's been sustained interest in racial justice. And I have to tell you, when that first happened, I thought it was going to be typical to what usually happens in this country. A couple of months of intense interest, and then we move on. And I don't think that that's happened for a lot of people. People have been really interested in, in trying to grapple with these issues, not only systemically and what's happening in our society at large, but also in their own lives. The number of people that have taken the time to talk to black creatives, black social justice leaders and racial justice leaders and find out, you know, what are we thinking? What would we like to see? Reading books, trying to get into dialogue. Um, I, I have been impressed and surprised that it's been sustained for this long. We still have a lot that we, of work that we have to do, but I think we still have a moment. And this exhibit, I think, is an extension of that moment. And so I, I'm hoping that it's a gateway for people to delve more deeply into Colorado's black history and then just understand the ways that we have felt so many barriers, obstacles, but we still manage to triumph, we're resilient, and we assert our humanity. We're going to talk about some specific aspects of Black history as it relates to Boulder shortly. But first, this exhibit is also about Black history and Colorado as a whole. How would you describe the exhibit in your own words? So I would say that it is a very comprehensive look in many ways at Colorado's black history. Of course, we had to thread the needle because mm. there's so many stories to tell. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to balance telling that Colorado story, but definitely giving a shout out to Boulder because it's housed at the Museum of Boulder. So we're trying to just balance those things. But we wanted to talk about the black experience in Colorado from the earliest days when Africans, uh, people of African heritage were in this area and then try to bring it all the way up to the current times but then have a look at the future. Well, I'm just curious, did you learn anything new in this process? Oh, I learned a lot of new stuff, um, mainly because we were very intentional about reaching out to the community. And Minister Glenda will tell you about the oral histories that we've collected. So mm. she has found some fascinating people that I didn't know about. So I'm just really excited for people to learn these stories and just learn about this history because Colorado does not have a reputation for being you know, the most diverse place. Well, I can definitely attest to that as a person who moved here, and I've actually been surprised and shocked at the rich history. Mm -hmm. I also understand that kids in school in Boulder Valley will also get a curriculum on black history stemming from this exhibit. Yeah, it was very important for us that this exhibit live beyond the walls of the museum. So we got someone who could develop a curriculum with the Boulder Valley School District. And we don't want it too rooted in history. We want people to know their history, but we wanted it to be a jumping off point to understand contemporary issues and also look to the future. And it takes resources to do all of this. So we have a $250,000 goal. We're about a third of the way there. So we hope that as people learn about this exhibit and hear the stories and hear what we're trying to do, that they'll support what we're trying to accomplish here. And even before we put the exhibit together, we spoke to young people and asked them what would they like to see. What are some of the suggestions that the kids shared? So one thing that was very memorable is they wanted to have something experiential. And so we have two installations in the exhibit. One is a Second Baptist Church, which is the only now predominantly black church in northern Colorado. Hmm. Uh, Minister Glenda can speak to that as a member of that church, longtime member, and she's also clergy on that church. And then also we have an installation of Deerfield which was an all-black agricultural colony, which speaks to the homesteading experience. Mm. A lot of people don't think of African-Americans as homesteaders. When the act was first passed federal level at 1862, African-Americans were often denied 
uh, the opportunity to homestead, but still over time, those opportunities opened up. And Deerfield is the most famous example of an all-black agricultural colony in Colorado, but there were several throughout the states. It's just Deerfield was the one that has, gets the most recognition. So we were mindful of that, and we, we made sure that we had some stuff that kids can kind of plug into when they're uh, going through the exhibit. Another interesting facet about this exhibit is that you try to recreate what life was like for the first known black child here in Colorado. You, re you visit that concept, and that was back in 1864. Tell us about her and how did she come to be in Colorado? Her name is Annabelle Riley. As far as the records indicate, she was born in 1864, the first African-American child born in Colorado. And so we wanted her to welcome you to the exhibit. And then through her life, she evokes the main themes of the exhibit. And do we know what she looked like? Are there any written accounts of her experience? We have some biographical information of her through uh, newspaper articles and other things. But we learn more about her parents, actually. Her father, Thomas, was actually one of the early black people to come to Colorado. He was brought out here by a group of miners from Georgia. And then in time, he was uh, accomplished in his own right. So we hear more about her parents. She died young, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't hear a lot about her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you present her in silhouette. So is it in some ways trying to impart, she's specifically herself, mm -hmm. but she also represents an experience. Exactly. So we talk about how she and her family built community by you know, being planted in a place, going to a black church, doing other things to make a living, build community, relate to other folks, and you know, try to have that American dream. Well, what sense did you get about what life was like to be a child in that time? So it was a mixed experience. So Colorado, even though legally there was never the things that we see in other states in terms of slavery being legal and certain things on the books to forcibly segregate and other things, people were doing it by practice. Even though we hear about the South a lot, People took those notions with them outside of the South and transplanted them all over the country. And also media outlets were very happy to reprint things that were racist about black people in their newspapers. So you're, you're reading newspapers in the 1800s in Colorado and you're seeing the N-word all over the place. Uh, we also had lynchings here in Colorado. So we tell the story of Preston Porter who was lynched in the early 1900s. So sometimes black folks were in a place where they were left alone and they were able to have self-determination and carve out a good life. But so like the situation of black folks in so many different parts of the country, white racism, jealousy, whatever you call it, sought to limit the opportunities, both social, economic, and political for African-Americans. How did other black people migrate to Colorado? So some came here for economic opportunity. So um, in the 1830s and 40s, you had fur trappers. Some people were enslaved. We have scattered reports of enslaved people in mining camps throughout the country. So some came in that way. Some came for opportunity. We think of someone like uh, Clara Brown, who was formerly enslaved, made her way here as a laundress, made quite a bit of money, became a philanthropist, was very influential in her faith communities. Um, some were brought here for military service. So it was a combination of economic opportunity, enslavement, uh, seeking liberty, just wanted a chance at a better life. Let's bring you into the conversation, Minister Glenda Strong Robinson, who is a civil rights activist and a minister at Second Baptist Church. 
before we talk about how it's presented here in the museum, tell us about the significance of the Second Baptist Church in Boulder. Well, Second Baptist Church was organized by, and I always say, nine forward-thinking people, five women and four men. The reason that that's significant is that I'm the second woman minister on staff in our 115-year wow. history. So on January 7, 1908, they uh, chartered and began service. It was the beloved community. It was how people got together and did life, literally. And I feel fortunate and blessed to have been at Second Baptist for the last 43 years because I have a chance to interact with the grandchildren of four of the nine founding members. Well, I can definitely attest to church being very much a part of the spiritual and social experience for black Americans. Tell us what was it like here? Well, I moved here in 1980. We moved from Long Beach to Longmont. And I had to Whoa, stop. that sounds <laughs> very far apart. <laughs> when I got here, we were transferred. And I was pregnant with my now 43-year-old son. And I had a six-year-old daughter. And I looked around and I thought, God, are you anywhere? Where, where are the black people? I have not seen any. I've gone for two weeks and I have not seen any. And different than how we grew up, you know, ain't so-and-so was on the next corner or in the next block, and grandma so-and-so lived over here and lived over there. These people could come by and pick you up. Not only did we have no black people, we had no family here. Mm. And so this is where I met the 19th and Canyon Church. It was kind of leaning to one side and, you know, it was built in 1946. And then then I noticed the choir would rock, and we'd lean to the other side, and so I and, thought, and you're rocking okay. as you say this. <laughs> I, I'm saying I can get with this. I can get with this, and so I've been there 43 years. So, well, I moved here in 2012, and our stories are shockingly similar. <laughs> and as a person who's in a lot of online groups about diversity, people are still asking, "Where are the black people in Colorado?" Ex exactly. And we tell them. <laughs> We tell them that they are here, we, believe it or not. So now we're here at the installation of the Second Baptist Church. There's a lot to see here. I see a choir robe. There's a video playing of a choir performance. I see a piano. Really just different artifacts from the church from the old church, 19th and Canyon Street. And that was the address? Yes, uh, that I mentioned before. We moved to our current location in uh, 1991. Mm. This robe happens to be the robe of Reverend Hansford Van, who was uh, the longest serving pastor there. Mm. He was the, the chaplain. <laughs> Boy, he'd be in his heyday right now. He just passed away two years ago. He was the chaplain for the Colorado Buffaloes uh, football team. Well, so. I bet he's still excited about those buffs. <laughs> I bet he is. Yeah, go buffs. I'm sure he'd be saying I also right see a pretty worn pew, church pew behind you. Yes, that piano 
mm -hmm. was purchased in 1946 wow. when the Queen Alice mission and a bunch of women got together, and you know how we have fish fries and chicken fries. They paid for the dishes and the, uh, the settings in our kitchen, the formal settings, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they also purchased that piano. I also see this very, um, this darker hued image of Jesus <laughs> holding a lamb. Uh, yes, and that too is from the 19th and Canyon location. I have to tell you something funny about that because we found this up in the women's pool behind uh, the, the, dress, the dressing room for baptism before you come down into the pool. And uh, I looked at it, and so I was like, oh, it's quite the piece. So when I went up there and I saw this, I thought, oh, yeah, this is a treasure. This right here is a treasure. And so, it's massive. Yes. And remember, I talked about the family, the founding members, the son of the founding members, was in the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra at CU Boulder in 1930. Wow. This is his violin. Those are pictures of him and his wife. We called her Granny. She was just a granny. Everybody. They <laughs> she lived. always had peppermint in her purse. Peppermint. <laughs> and after service, we we're going to have dinner out at the farm. She was a maid, I'll just say that, out at Boulder Valley Farms until she died. Yes. Well, it's really amazing the um, condition of these artifacts. I mean, considering the age, I mean, this violin is like in pristine condition. There's so much history here. I just, my bones just, I just love history. It's so important for us to know, if, we, if at all possible, where we came from, who our people are, and what legacy they left us, because we're just really walking in the footsteps of things that they've laid out for us already and the prices that they've paid. So, so grateful for my four parents. It does make a difference to have that connection to your history. And the more you know, it just tends to give you sort of a sense of pride right. about who you are, where you came from, what your family has overcome. Right. Obviously, you are a big history buff, as you stated, but what do you hope that this installation of the Second Baptist Church will convey to visitors here at this exhibit? If there ever was an against all odds, but by the grace of God, story of a people, it is the story of the African-American people who were not allowed to read and write, were not allowed to do anything with the brain, but you could do the manual physical labor. It is the African-American people. And, and, and God, in my faith tradition, has allowed us to persevere and, and do things, not just things, but do great things as human beings. It, it just is so funny that after the George Floyd incident, the, the reactions, and I'm sure you all can attest to it too, that we get from people. I had someone come to my door and knock on the door and she had tears in her eyes and said, oh, I'm so sorry. I did not know this sort of thing happened today. 
And I really wanted to say, where you, where you been? <laughs> you under a rock? <laughs> or, or, I mean, I, I'm not being, even trying to be cynical. So you were just but, surprised that this person did not know? I mean, me living in Longmont, I can go for a week and not see another black person. This was a white lady, so I could understand a little bit about what she was saying. But then on the other hand, I thought, no, I mean, it's, it's all over. Injustice is all around us. I know people who were lynched for voting, the right to vote. I know families, I'll say, who were lynched. And, you know, we've seen all the atrocities, but it, it never stops gripping your heart when you think that we're people, we're mans, that we're human beings, and we've got to learn to respect and regard and love human life, human beings who exist. A large part of this exhibit is the collection of oral histories from Black Coloradans. What did you find most fascinating about the personal stories you heard? To see how excited people were to reflect on where they had been. Many of them have accomplished great things from humble beginnings. I, I think about, and I hope I'm okay to mention her name, but Sandy Banks I did her interview last July. She was one of only five black teachers in the Boulder Valley School District for over 30, 35 years or so. And it's like, yeah, I haven't done anything that great. I said, I still, tell me, keep telling me, tell me your story. I got a call from her daughter in June. Uh, and she said, mom's in the hospital. Well, she passed, but I got her to give her oral history last July. I, I'm so heartwarmed by that because she did things that mattered. Bringing this back to current day, there are some interesting and unique times here in Boulder, especially with the attention being given to Deion Sanders as coach of the CU Buffs and just a lot of discussion about an influx of black culture here in the Boulder area. What do you make of this moment? It feels like almost a magical moment. My sister has watched football, and she's like, I don't know what a first down is, and I do know what a touchdown is. But everybody is, is moving in to that camera and looking down at what's happening on this field. It's like, Coach Prime, yes! Buffaloes, yes! Shador and Shiloh and... It's a proud moment, I'll say that, because I don't know and I don't care what you try to make of this man, but this man is a man of God who loves his family and he loves his, these, uh, his other family. He got a whole bunch of children on this team that he's trying to make productive young black men. So... Adrian Miller, the Soul Food Scholar, let's bring you back into this conversation. What do you make of this moment with the nation really taking a close look at Boulder and also this discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion here in the Boulder area? What do you make of this moment with Coach Prime and just the attention being given? Well, I think it's a really interesting opportunity. You know, the example that he has set, um, he's electrified this community. 
Um, but we're noticing what he's doing, especially for these young men. I mean, you can tell that he really cares about mentoring these young men. And um, I have people that have expressed concern about him and these young men that he's bringing into this community just because of the reality of what Boulder is like compared to its image. But I, I think it's exciting to see the community rallying around him and also the nation just looking uh, at Colorado. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to have a, a launching point to explore what is black life in a place like Boulder? What is black life in a place like Colorado? Uh, so I, I think it's a time of tremendous opportunity. And, you know, did I know that I was going to have friends of mine staying up until two o'clock in the morning and wherever they were to, to watch a CU football game? Yes, I can I, understand. I, I'm getting calls and I have been here 11 years and none of these people wanted to visit me until right, now. Right, right. <laughs> They're like, I'm coming out to a game. Right. So filmmaker Katrina Miller is a part of this exhibit and she did a documentary called This Is Not Who We Are that detailed some of the challenges that many black people say they experience here in Boulder. What do you think it means to put this all on display? Yeah, I, I think self-examination is a good thing. I know there, there may be some that say, no, we don't want to put a negative light on this community and things, but you know, we just have to be real. We have to let people know what life is like because we want a better community, want a better life. And the ways we're gonna get there is if we acknowledge what's happened in the past, what's happening now, and may continue to happen if we don't change course. And so I think shining a light on these issues so that we can create a shared future, you know, just acknowledge what's going on, but then we can create a shared future together, I think is a good thing. Now let's bring artist Adderley Grant Lord into the conversation to talk about the visual art portion of this exhibit. Adderley, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the art. Like what was the process like of selecting the art for this installment? As you could tell from our history, it's very heavy. It's kind of heart-wrenching, some of it. I wanted the art to disturb you as well as bring you joy. Hmm. Because for, for the next generation, for the ancestor in the making, I would like to be remembered as someone that bring light. And my work kind of does that. I've been told that by a lot of people and I feel that myself. So we're standing here in front of one of your pieces. Can you describe it for us? Okay, so this is, well, you did think of a sunflower, but it's not. <laughs> it's actually a portrayal of my inner feeling that I get when I paint. This is a part of a series. I have one that was called um, uh, A Joy Giver. This is a joy bringer. Uh, that's what you want to bring into the world. Um, happiness comes and goes, but joy is something you, you could decide on. And this piece here is called Unity, and it's by artist J. Clark Whiter. Yes. Portraying a family unit yeah. kind of huddled together. Yeah. Bring, that's bring the family unit and the joy. Mm -hmm. And like what you guys were talking about earlier about the church being the family. Mm -hmm. So that's why I pair the family up with that. Mm -hmm. Now this is massive. How do you describe this? Oh, okay, this is the perspective front, front and back. We all, from my perspective of this piece of art by um, John Tom, it's when you go to a concert, you see everything that happened in the front, but the, the back 
ground have energy. So there's another own. story going there's on in the back. There's another story going yes. on in the back. Um, so this is the front aspect of it. And if you go, you have to walk around the whole piece. It's a painting that becomes a 3D action. I'm in noticing motion. that. Everything is in motion. And I'm in love with And it's musicians. We have a drummer. Uh, is that an upright bass? Yeah. And like you said, it's really jumping out at you in a three-dimensional way. Yeah. So also, so if you walk around it. So we're on the back side of it now. Yeah. So you're seeing the back of the musicians. And again, more pieces jumping out, the drumsticks. Mm. And um, just kind of lots of different protruding pieces. Like his tie is basically came from the front aspect mm. of it. So this is all motion of the energy and just the vibration in him drumming. I've not come across a piece of work that have basically jump off the canvas. And this is what this piece does. It, it's full of energy and motion. And they all seem to have vibrant colors. Was that intentional? Well, I, I don't think I could do anything without the color. <laughs> I, um, I figure you're coming from a historical perspective where we are discussing slavery, we're discussing not being included. You know, I was listening to Glenda earlier and I was like, the fact that she says that, um, she was like, where are all the black people at? <laughs> I came here in 2009, and I'm still asking that question. <laughs> well, I told her, yeah, it's still I'm being st asked. Yeah, I'm still asking that question. But um, with the art, well, I'm hoping to pull us together. What do you want the person who comes to visit this exhibit to walk away with? I want it to awaken in all of us a sense of um, joy, empty. I want them to be fully human without the condition of what this world handed us today. This world handed us a lot of device ability. Like everything is divisiveness. Mm -hmm. And I want them to come and get to know themselves as they were born to know themselves, not as this universe had to create them to be. Mm -hmm. Because with all the noise in our head, I don't think we can hear ourselves. So, well, that's interesting as we stand before a piece called Unity. So it sounds like that's what you really want. Yeah, I want people to unify, but within your heart. I don't want it to be superficial. It don't make any sense to come here and witness this and walk away with nothing. I want you to take the time, take a quiet moment when they, within this exhibit and view it from a sister, mother, or father perspective as we are all one and we, it's about time we give each other the space to be who we were meant to be and who we came here to be. So that is kind of what my art, I try to do within my art and this exhibit. One question that is being posed here is what type of ancestor you want to be? That's the question being posed to those who come to this exhibit. Adderley, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Okay, I'm going to say this proudly. From the place within my heart, I want to be the ancestor that I was intended to be without all the noise. The one that gives, listen and is kind. The one that moved throughout this world as someone that I see you as an energy. I say a human being first before I see you as anything others, as you to harm me. I wanna be the person that brings joy. And I think I am. So I'm a little, 2000, <laughs> COVID have kind of 
give me a perspective on life that I'm actually enjoying and loving. I am being my full authentic self. And I don't really care what my mom, my husband, my brother, my sister, my cousin, my friends, my neighbor thinks or feel or understand about that because I think we lose that in just being your authentic self. Dance to your own rhythm. We all have that music, that light, that joy inside of us. Let it out because this world so need it. Hence that piece. That piece um, is my last piece that I painted lately, the newest pieces. Um, and it's darkness, light, light mm. cannot be consumed by darkness. But darkness cannot stand alone without light. So when you leave the room and you turn off the light, you have to turn off light in order to get darkness. Try not to turn off the light. You mentioned that you moved here in 2009. Yeah. And obviously during that time frame, you've had your own Colorado experience as a black person here in Colorado. What about your experience do you hope that this exhibit will communicate? When I moved here, I had no intention of painting. I have no intention of being at the Museum of Boulder. But in 2020, something awakened me and here I am now for full purpose and so that my daughter could see her mother as someone she could talk to about with her grandkids when I'm long gone. Mm. And that I did this in a community that was one, less than 1% black and that I am bringing my community together to my art. Well, I see tears in your eyes. I'm sorry. I about see that. tears in your eyes as you say that. So it really makes you emotional to have your family remember you in that way. But it's not even remembering me. It's that I find some part of me have become my mother, and I would like some part of my daughter to become me in a mm. sense, with a, with a, tw a different twist of who she is. So I want my daughter to go. My mom was fierce. She did this in a town where there was 1% of her here. Hmm. And um, this is a journey. This actually was on my bucket list, which is weird that all these things are coming full fruition. I, I don't want to stop with art. I kind of want to have the community have a comedy club. I would like to have a society where I go, I have choices. I have to make decisions on what I see in Boulder that kind of celebrate my culture. You know, oh my gosh, do I go to this or do I go to that? Now, there's none. You got to go somewhere else to find that. So I'm bringing it So you here. really I, wanted to make sure I, that was here? Yeah, I Boulder. wanted to be here because I have so many people that came and leave, and it's a beautiful place. I but am, they didn't have a, con they couldn't connect. They didn't have any of this, and they couldn't connect. So I'm trying to bring the, the joy I want, I'm, I'm placing it here. And I really don't give a coo-hoo what anybody feel, think, or understand about that. I am going to do it. And I ask, I, I knock on doors, and I ask questions. And I ask, and I ask, and I ask. And now it seems that it's turning where people say, can you, can you, can you do this, can you do that? And part of me was like, dear God, what am I doing? But I'm doing it. So, and I think that's where our strength come from in knowing what it is to be in the trenches. We know how to walk to the trenches and then go have a party. And that's kind of what I want the art to do. Adrian, 
Minister Glenda and Adderley, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Adderley Grant Lord chose the visual art featured in the new exhibit at the Museum of Boulder called Proclaiming Colorado's Black History. Her own art is also on display. Earlier, we heard from Adrian Miller and from Minister Glenda Strong Robinson, who led the exhibit, which is scheduled to be at the museum for two years. And one final note, Adrian Miller is on CPR's board of directors. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Maybe you have seen the new black Colorado license plates. They're getting very popular, but... Uh, where are the mountains? Does black have any special significance? How and why did the DMV decide on these plates? And if your registration is still current, but you can't wait, can you get one too? Colorado Wonders digs into these new black license plates, and you can read all about it at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Student loans are due again starting this month after three years of payments being on hold due to the pandemic. Wondering when to pay, how to pay, and even how much to pay again can be overwhelming. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has some tips. She spoke with Colorado student loan attorney Karen Cody Hopkins about where to get started and what has changed. For most people, they're coming on with a new repayment plan, a change in servicers. They probably barely remember what was going on in March of 2020 for their individual loan. And so besides having to enter repayment, there's a couple of changes. There's something called the on-ramp, which the department says, yes, you need to start repaying your loans, but until September of 2024, we're encouraging you, but we're not going to penalize you. They're not going to do anything if you don't make a payment except bug you to make your payment. But there are good reasons to start making payments because interest started to accrue September 1st, and there are new changes and new forgiveness programs that you should educate yourself about because you might get a surprise of being one of the people that's going to be given not the Biden-Harris $10,000-$20,000 forgiveness, but a different forgiveness programs. I'll ask you about those in a minute, sure. but I wanted to back up one step. Before that, what's the first thing borrowers should do to decide the best route to pay off their student loans? I'm thinking maybe a budget, see if their circumstances have changed from three years ago. And then should they first go to the federal studentaid.gov website? Yes. They're going to need to head to studentaid.gov. First of all, they're going to want to update their contact information because the department and federal student aid, known as FSA, they're sending out regular communications to people and you don't want to miss those. Second, you want to go in and re-familiarize yourself with what loans do you have and who's your servicer because many servicers changed and there's only four left. And if you have multiple servicers or if you have loans older than 20 or 25 years, you're going to want to look at consolidating your loans so that you only have one-stop shopping at one servicer and you make yourself eligible for some of the income forgiven for the very old loans. And you're going to want to set up an account at your servicer's website. 
So eventually, you'll only need the studentaid.gov because they're planning to phase out the servicer websites. But now you need to go and look at Mohila, Nelnet, Ed Financial, or Aid Advantages websites. So you'll end up having two accounts. There's also a loan simulator on the studentaid.gov site that tells you the plans you're eligible for, monthly payment, how much you'll pay out of pocket over time, and whether you qualify for a forgiveness program. Is that right? Yes. First, you want to read about the plans, because if you jump into the simulator without looking and understanding, there are time-based plans where you pay the loan off after a certain amount of time, but there's no forgiveness. And then there are income-driven repayment plans, and especially the new save plan. And those, you make a payment based on your income with the idea that after 20 or 25 years, your balance will be forgiven. And most people don't understand that under those plans, yes, they'll have lower payments and get forgiveness, but the loan's going to grow over time because you're not paying all the interest. And so that can be scary to people if they don't understand the trade-off of lower payments, but forgiveness at the end. Definitely. So we have this new, there's many, as you say, income-driven payment programs, the IRDs that adjust the monthly payment based on the borrower's income and family size. Those go back decades. But President Biden announced a save plan that's said to be more generous than existing plans. Just give me a couple ideas of why it's, it's more generous. Two reasons are critical. First, it has a lower payment because it only requires you to pay 10% now, but 5% next year of your uh, adjusted gross income. And the SAVE plan has a smaller payment for many people, not everybody, but many people, but it has an even better silver lining. And that is the interest does not grow because if you make a payment under the plan and it doesn't pay all your interest, the interest is not going to be added on. So instead of ballooning like the loans did in the income-driven programs before, this one is trying to keep it lower. And second of all, for people who go to less expensive colleges, community colleges, for example, there is going to be next July, there's some additional things added on to save, and, and there will be more forgiveness for people who have debts under $12,000. So that's uh, even more benefits to come. And just to give people an idea, a single borrower who makes less than about $15 an hour would not have to make any payments and borrowers earning above that amount, it's estimated would save about $1,000 a year. Yeah, and there's a nice chart on studentaid.gov that shows you amounts and family size. There is one special thing to know about SAVE, however, and that is it is a program that if you file your taxes jointly, they take your spouse's income into consideration. But in SAVE, if you file your taxes separately, they only take your income, which can make your payment significantly lower. Let's say you have several loans. Uh, should you prioritize paying the smallest loan amount or the loan with the highest interest rate? Well, I would first say that I would look into consolidating if you have more than one loan. Because the consolidation loan, there's no fee to consolidate. There's an online application, and it gives you a weighted average of those loans. Why consolidate? Because right now, through the end of the year, if you consolidate, then the department will give you credit toward IDR forgiveness 
going back to your oldest loan. And every two months, they're checking to see if people are past the 20 or 25 years, 20 years undergraduate, 25 if you have graduate loans. And I've had people have their loans be forgiven in the July batch and the September batch. I've had over $3 million of my clients' loans forgiven under the IDR audit. And these clients have been paying for years. And so they're so excited to find out a program that's trying to fix the many servicer problems the department found over the years. There's also a plan that's been around for a while, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Anyone who works for a nonprofit or government could get their loans forgiven after 10 years. That program was riddled with many problems for many years, but it's been revamped. Under previous servicers and managers, it was badly, badly handled. And they did an audit to discover how few people had ever gotten forgiveness. And now PSLF is a program that anybody who works and has worked for a nonprofit or a government anytime since October of 2007, once you've made 120 payments, 10 years of payments, then you should be eligible for forgiveness. And they've automated the process. It used to be paperwork and things. Now there's an online tool. And here, one important tip for public service loan forgiveness people, it's strange, but go to studentaid.gov and in the search bar, type the word ninja. N-I-N-J-A, because that's the name of their master tip sheet for public service people, which you'd never think of it. And it's on the PSLF page, but not enough people click on that link and learn how to really, really manage the program. Ninja, who would have thought? This loan, we should say, can be for teachers, nurses, first responders, librarians, early childhood educators, mental health counselors. Karen, it's interesting talking with you because it, it it definitely feels like a more hopeful approach. I think I read some statistic that only 2% of the population continued paying off their loans during this, this pause. You know, we know that the cost of living is much higher now. What are you hearing out there? Are people nervous about this? Well, people are very nervous right now because the, the services are so inundated, people can't get through to them and they can't get information. So the two major tips are don't get so panicked because with the on-ramp, nothing's going to happen if you don't get signed up today. You still have time. Don't, don't, don't put it off, but, but if you can't get through, don't spend a lot of time on the phone. Call next week or the week after. But the most important thing is you have to become educated. You have to use your college time and education to go to studentaid.gov and look at look through their drop-down menus, look through the, the pages that go a little deeper. You have to become educated about your student loans to manage them because they will last either until they're paid off or until you die. But most people will find that they can find a manageable plan if they just educate themselves. And this is what I see is a reluctance. You should not need a student loan lawyer. I find it absolutely absurd that I exist as, as, as someone who's too busy. But it's because people don't understand that they have to educate themselves about the programs and the options and the various choices. It's not just a simple five-minute choice, unfortunately. Thank you, Karen, for your time. Uh, hopefully you've given borrowers some courage to go forward. 
Now, I appreciate it. I know people are very focused on dealing with, you know, this after a long, long period of not having to think about it. But hopefully everyone will, in the next few months will get back into the swing of it. Karen Cody Hopkins is a student loan attorney in Colorado. She spoke with CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. You may check out Jenny's reporting on student loan repayments at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Sandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC. 